might be one on the chair underneath the chair close to you. It's real important that uh, when you come to listen to a sermon that you have God's word in front of you. Otherwise, you're hearing the man speak and you don't know if the man's speaking the truth or not unless you're looking at the Bible. So I'd encourage you not only to read the scripture now with me, but actually keep it open throughout the service and look at your Bible throughout the message. It'll be a means of grace for you if you do. Matthew chapter 17 verse 1 says this, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Verse six. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let's pray together again. Father, Work in us right now so that as Peter, James, and John responded on the mountain, it is good that we are here. Lord, may we be so stirred by the sight of your glory through the preaching of your word that we will say it is good that we are here. And Lord, may the sight transform us May it convert the lost and you be glorified in it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. It was only a keychain that I wanted that said, go army. And I sent off for it when I was 17. Little did I know that a recruiter would begin to relentlessly call me about joining the army. And as I saw my other buddies joining the military, several did uh, in 1990, I followed suit. And the army gave me a really good sales pitch. We had a really good recruiter named Kyle Kernan, a special forces guy, a big tough looking guy that came to our little town there in the foothills of East Tennessee and, and gave me the speech. And later I went to what's called the MEP Center to sign up 
and uh, they showed me a, a little film about being a cannon crew member, which was field artillery. And, and this guy got out of this self-propelled field artillery uh, howitzer and uh, with a big smile on his face and somebody handing him a cup of coffee on this little movie and it just looked great, you know. Plus, the, my recruiter told me, you know what? You can get stationed at Fort Campbell, Kentucky if you sign up for four years. I told my mom I only sign up for two. And you know what? They got really good deer hunting at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. <laughs> so much to my mom's uh, demise, I guess you would say, I come home and I'd signed up for four years. And I did get stationed at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, but as soon as I got there, the very first day I was there, they told me, you're gonna go to the desert, to Iraq. And my mom started crying again. And uh, nobody ever handed me a cup of coffee with a smile on their face when I was in that field artillery unit. But the salesman certainly gave a good pitch and I enlisted. Well, that's, that's what any salesman would do, any recruiter would do. That's their job, you know, not to deceive. My recruiter didn't deceive me. Um, he certainly gave it a good message and made it sound really good. And I enlisted. Jesus' recruitment speech for joining up and following him is not what you would expect. Because essentially what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, the chapter prior to we just read, is this. I'm going to die. In fact, he says, I must die. I must be killed. And if you're going to follow me, you must be willing to die too. That's Jesus' recruitment speech. That's his sales pitch. Now, who wants to follow Jesus? Who in their natural mind would want to respond to that invitation to follow Jesus. Peter, James, and John went up on the mount of what's called the Mount of Transfiguration here in Matthew chapter 17 that we just read. And what they saw foreshadowed in that mountaintop experience because what they saw was what Jesus was speaking about in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, about the glory of his return one day. So they got to see that foreshadowed in Matthew chapter 17. What they saw foreshadowed in this mountaintop experience led them to follow Jesus. It was a, it was a factor in leading them to follow Jesus. They followed Jesus because they saw his glory. They saw it on the mountain, but there were other times when Jesus manifested his glory as well, at the cross and at the resurrection and on the day of Pentecost. They followed Jesus because they saw his glory. In fact, you can read Peter, who was one of the three on the mountain, writes two more letters, First and Second Peter in the New Testament, and he writes in Second Peter about his experience on the mountain. He never got over it. He followed Jesus because he saw his glory. Now, why is that important for us? That following Jesus led following Jesus was a result of seeing his glory. Well, that's why we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus. We enlist. And he says, I'm going to die, I must die, and you must be willing to die too if you're going to follow me. It's not going to be easy. Why would we enlist? Because we enlist, we're converted because we have seen his glory. This is why we follow Jesus, because we see his glory. And that is also how we continue to follow Jesus. We continue to see his glory. And so... 
Travel with me, if you would, on top of the mountain with Peter, James, and John and the Lord Jesus. And let's see what they saw and what that, how that reminds us of what we must long for as believers and prioritize on a daily basis in our own time with the Lord. What is, it, what is the glory of Jesus that we must see that's going to lead us to follow him and to continue to follow him. What is this glory? What is so glorious about him that would lead us to follow him and keep on following him even when the kids are driving us nuts? Even when we're not seeing the fruit of our ministry we'd like to see? Even when we got cancer in our bodies or we just lost someone we loved? Why would we follow Jesus? Why would we keep following Jesus when we're being persecuted? What's so glorious about him that would sustain us through all the stuff we're going through? And the world says there's nothing to it. The world says there's more than one way to heaven or there's not even a heaven and that this Bible is just a bunch of made up stuff. What would compel us to keep following Jesus? Number one, the majesty of God and his son. What is it that we must see about the glory of Jesus? The majesty of God in his son. That there's something about Jesus when we behold him and look upon him with eyes of faith that we see God. And that's what's happening on the mountain. They've been following the Lord Jesus, this man from Nazareth. They've seen him do a lot of miracles. And Peter's proclaimed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But they're in their infantile stage of their faith. He says they're of little faith. They're still grasping exactly the magnitude of who it is that they're following. In fact, Jesus had confronted them earlier and talked to them earlier. And they were amazed when he had come to them walking on water. And, and they said, surely you are this man. Surely this is the son of God. But yet later on, he asked them in Matthew chapter 16, who do you say that I am? And they say, he's the son of God. Why? Why does he continue to ask them these kind of questions? Because they're in need of their faith growing and grasping who Jesus is. So the majesty of God and his son is revealed in four ways. And I say majesty because in Peter's letter of 2 Peter, in chapter 1 verse 6, when he talks about what we're reading here in Matthew chapter 17, he says that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, his magnificence. His magnificence, his majesty is revealed in four ways here in the first few verses in Matthew chapter 17. One of the ways is the transformed countenance of Jesus, his countenance. There's his countenance and then there's uh, the company that uh, appears with him. There's a cloud that overshadows him and then there's a striking contrast. So those are the four talking points I want to work through right now. The four ways that his majesty is revealed. So first, the transformed countenance of Jesus. If you look again at your Bible, if you've got it open... Says he was transfigured before them. That Greek word, a lot of you know this already, is where we get our word metamorphosis. There's a transformation taking place inside and out. He's being transformed. 
And it says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. So you imagine the disciples seeing this. They're seeing this man, Jesus, they've been following. And all of a sudden, there's this metamorphosis takes place. There's this transformation that takes place. Something similar had happened to Moses back in the book of Exodus. And the Bible says his face shone because he had been in the presence of the glory of God. Remember when Moses came back to the people in the camp? They said, Moses, put a put a... Put something over your face. You're scaring us here. Well, I'm glad people don't say that when they see me. But anyway, they said, put something over your face because the glory of God shone so brightly because he had been in the presence of God. Now his face was reflecting the glory of God. Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God. He is showing us that he, he is God. His face is not shining because he's been in the presence of God. His face is shining because the layer of humanity has been pulled back all of a sudden and now they can see who it is they've been following. This is God. They're seeing the majesty of God in his son through the transformed countenance of Jesus. Then there's the appearance of a great but inferior company. A great but inferior company. Who is that company in verse three? What's your Bible say? Who appeared? Moses and Elijah. And they're talking with him. The book of Luke says they're talking about his departure, his exodus. In other words, he's getting ready to go to the cross and they're talking to him about that. So, Peter has it in mind, like any good Baptist, to start a building project, right? What's he say in verse four? Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And so, sometimes we think if we build a big building, if we build it, they will come. So his idea here is we're going to build one tent for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. And then if they'd have done that, they'd probably went down off the mountain, one commentator says, and told everybody, come up on the mountain and see these three tents of Elijah and Moses and Jesus are there. But the thing is... They'd understand, underestimated the necessity of the cross. Jesus must go to the cross. There'll be no installation of Jesus as king. We will not behold the glory of God without the cross. He must go to the cross. It can't be a building project. They'd underestimated the necessity of the cross, but he'd also underestimated the necessity of Christ. The superiority of Christ is better said. Because he's going to build a tent for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. Jesus is on another plane. He is God. He's the creator of Moses and Elijah. He's greater than the law represented by Moses. He's greater than the prophets represented by Elijah. He's not equal. He's not just a prophet. He is who Peter confessed earlier. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. And his majesty is revealed in the appearance of these who come, who had died earlier, but were now with the Lord, which reminds us that there is a resurrection, that he is the God of the living, amen? Because those who die in the Lord are living with the Lord. So there's a transformed countenance of Jesus and the appearance of a great but inferior company that magnifies and shows us his majesty, magnifies him and shows us his majesty. Then there's a cloud of confirmation Look at your Bible and notice what it says next in verse 5. 
He was still speaking, talking about this building project. Can you just hear, hey, we're going to do this, we're going to build this, and, and that's what we're going to do. And while he was still speaking, this cloud overshadows all of a sudden. You just see this cloud coming down on this mountain? A bright cloud overshadowing them for 600 years. What we presume to be the Shekinah glory cloud of God that used to, they, the, the people of Israel used to follow that. A cloud by day and a fire by night, and it would appear over the tabernacle. But when the people rebelled, the glory cloud went away in the book of Ezekiel. For 600 years, that glory cloud had not appeared. But it appears that right now, the glory cloud is coming and ascending over Jesus on the mountain as Peter is still speaking about his big ideas. And then a voice speaks. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. What is the glory of Jesus that we need to see? The majesty of God in his son. We're seeing it in his face. We're seeing it with the company that appears with him. But we're also seeing in this cloud of confirmation, the voice speaks. It's the father saying, this is my son and I'm well pleased with him. The Bible says those that are in the flesh in the book of Romans cannot please God. And guess what? We're all in the flesh. And Jesus was in the flesh, but being in the flesh, he was without sin. So when the Father looked upon the Son, he saw the exact representation of himself. The radiance of the glory of God, we're told in the book of Hebrews. It was like the Father looking in a mirror. Now, I don't know if any of you dads look in the mirror and look at yourself in the morning and say, Man, boy, you look, you look good today. Be very vain, very idolatrous, very silly. But it would be sinful if God did not see himself and, and rejoice in it. Because there's nothing greater than the glory of God. And when he looks upon his son, he says, this is my beloved son. There's no imperfections in him. In him, I'm well pleased. And so what the disciples are seeing again and hearing again through this voice, this, the Father speaking, is they're seeing the glory of God in his Son, the majesty of God in his Son. They're hearing it. And then right after that, the Lord cuts off Peter, don't he? I'm going to build this building project. Listen to him. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Be quiet, Peter. You're trying to shortcut the path to glory again by building three tents. Remember what Peter's reaction was at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus said, right, I mean, this is right after he confessed a great confession, you know. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then he comes, Jesus comes back and says, I'm going to die, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And Peter comes back and says, that'll never happen. And he rebukes Jesus. He rebukes God the Son. Can you, he does not know yet who he's messing with, who he's following, right? And Jesus calls him the devil and says, get behind me, Satan. So when, G, when the Father speaks from this glory cloud and says, listen to him, saying, listen to what he's saying, listen to what he's been saying about the path to glory, about the path to the messianic king coming and doing what's always been promised by the prophets. It is not gonna be shortcutted by your big shot ideas, Peter. It goes by the way of the cross. The cross comes before glory. It comes before resurrection. So there's this cloud of confirmation, the transfiguration. So here you're seeing, Peter, listen, Peter, 
You're saying that's never going to happen to you. We're not going to let you die, Jesus. And all of a sudden, they're up on this mountain, and Jesus is transfigured. He's, his face is shining because he's God in the flesh. The, the flesh is being peeled back. They're, they're seeing this company. They're hearing this confirmation. And what they should be reminded of now, he's going to go to the cross. Listen to him, what he said about the cross and his suffering. He's going to go, but understand, it's not because he's powerless and because he's weak. He is God the Son. He's God of the flesh. Nobody's going to take his life. He's going to lay it down. When you see him go to the cross, it's not because he's some helpless, weak sheep that can't do anything about it. He can stop it from happening, but understand, this is the sovereign plan of God. God and he's going to do it because that's my plan. He can't stop. So don't worry when you see him suffer, when you hear him talking about his death, that he's lost his mind. No, the problem is that you've not understood your Bible because the prophets spoke about this. So there's this cloud of confirmation and then there's a striking contrast. Look at verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. <laughs> well, I think that's the right response. Just shut up and hide because you're about to die. But Jesus came and touched them. And remember who Jesus is. They're seeing the majesty of God in the Son. And the Son of God, God in the Son, the Son of God comes and touches them because we're reminded here that this God eternal Son that has always been the unchanging one, the uncreated one that we sang about this morning, he had come to earth and taken on flesh and now they were being reminded that one moment they see the glory of God uh, with the peeled back flesh and Jesus' glory shining the next moment. What's it say in verse eight? Who do they see? There's no great company, there's no great cloud. All they see is Jesus. What a striking contrast Glory! This is God in the flesh. And now, this man. What, what are they supposed to see here? What, what's so magnificent that's supposed to, that's supposed to ignite our hearts and, and worship him? It's the incarnation. It's the magnificence and the majesty and glory and weight of the fact that this one that we've been following is God who has come to earth and instead of wiping us out, he comes and touches us because he has come to earth in the flesh. So we see him go from sheer deity in their vision back to what seems to be mere humanity, but now they should know otherwise. He is no mere man. That this is the God-man. They've seen the majesty of God in his Son. If we are to become followers of Jesus who are willing to turn away from our sin and what's convenient and persevere and keep following him even when life stinks all around us, then we must see and continue to see the majesty of God in his son. And the reason some of you are following Jesus and you're sticking it out and you're persevering, you've not thrown in the white towel yet, 
is because you've seen You've seen the glory of God, the majesty of God in his son. Something happened. And now I know he touched me and made me whole. I used to sing that with my mom sitting on the piano stool when I was a little kid. I told you all that before. Shackled by heavy burden. Neath a load of guilt and shame Then the hand of Jesus touched me And now I am no longer the same He touched me He touched me And oh, the joy that floods my soul Something happened And now I know he touched me and made me whole. Isn't that our testimonies if we're believers? Something happened. And it wasn't a physical touch like they had on the mountain, but it was a divine intervention into our hearts where we began to see who Christ is. And we've been growing since. So the majesty of God and his son, we must see this if we're to follow Jesus and continue to follow him. But secondly, it's the love of God and his son's suffering. So we're seeing the majesty of God in his son, but secondly, that's going to lead us to follow Jesus. It's the love of God in his son's suffering. Remember he said, listen to him. Listen to what he said at Caesarea Philippi about the must of his death, the, the absolute essential need for him to go to the cross and die. Proclaiming the glory of Christ cannot be separated from the cross. And you see what verse 9 says. Verse 9, after this event happens, they make their way down the mountain. You see them going down the mountain now with Jesus? They're just amazed. They're just amazed about what's happened to them. And Jesus turns to him and commands him again like he's done in other times. He says, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. It's not yet time to go and proclaim my glory because I must first go to the cross. There can be no proclamation of the glory of Christ without the cross. Any preaching, any gospel presentation that has not got Jesus Christ, the Son of God, nailed to the cross in place of our sins is a false gospel. It is not good news. He's saying, you wait. And then you go proclaim after he's been raised from the dead. Because Christ will not reign in glory apart from the cross. Verse 10 Says the disciples asked him, they asked him questions about Elijah. Why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? There's a, that's a prophecy in the book of Malachi, chapter 1. And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. He says that prophecy is exactly right, but let me tell you something. What's he say in the next verse? What's your Bible say? Elijah's already come. What's it say in verse 13? Then they understood he was talking about John the Baptist. So he says, let me just get off that and go back into what the focus is here. It's not about Elijah. It's not even about John the Baptist. It's about me and what I'm going to do on the cross. So he says in verse 12, just look at the middle of verse 12. 
so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So just like Elijah was to suffer at their hands, the, the prophet like Elijah, and, and Elijah the prophet himself did suffer. And of course, John the Baptist's head was chopped off. He said, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So again, he's talking about his suffering. There's almost this obsession. It's an obsession because it's necessary that he go to the cross. And the disciples have so much, if they're going to persevere and if they're going to follow Jesus and they're going to follow Jesus effectively and fervently for his kingdom, they need to see that his magnificence is going to shine most brightly when he goes to the cross. That, that's what's going to compel them to persevere and follow Christ, is seeing not only is he God in Christ to become man, but he goes to the cross. And then understand what that means. He goes to the cross for our sins. So again, back in chapter 16, verse 22, when, when Peter uh, responded to Jesus' words about going to the cross, how did Peter respond? Not going to happen. Not going to let it happen. It's foolishness. He didn't, Peter did not take any pleasure in the death of the Son of God. But this is not how God the Father felt about the suffering of his son. For thousands of years, under the old covenant system, there had been animal sacrifices required. And yet this is what the Bible says about them. Therefore, when he comes into the world, when Jesus comes into the world, Hebrews 10, 5, and 6, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. No final, complete pleasure had been taken in these sacrifices and offerings that God commanded. Not a satisfying pleasure for the sins of man. Just a little kind of a passing over. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 11 says, I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. But Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 says, but the Lord was pleased. God took pleasure. The Lord was pleased to crush him. The Lord was pleased to crush Jesus. Does that mean the father sat back in heaven and said, oh, I'm really going to enjoy watching my son suffer? Absolutely not. But he took pleasure in that what his son did completely once for all, satisfied the payment for our sin. He took pleasure in that. Bring all your good works, bring all your church attendance, bring all your tithes, bring all your good morality, present it before me, and it'll be like filthy rags. I'll take no pleasure in it. But you come covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm satisfied, God says, satisfied. Take pleasure in that. That satisfies me. Then bring your tithes. Then bring your offerings. Then live a good life. Then go to church. Then tell people about me because in light of what my son has accomplished because I take pleasure in that. And the amazing thing about this is this is the same father who just looked at his son and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Yet he did not spare his own son. Brothers and sisters, what I'm saying really is pretty simple this morning in a lot of ways. If we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to remember 
the simplicity yet unimaginable complexity of the gospel. The majesty of God in his son, the love of God in his son's suffering. When we understand that, when we see that, that leads to following Christ. And so here's the two points of application I have for you. It leads to the conversion of to Christ, conversion to Christ. So I've already said this, really. Seeing leads to following. Seeing leads to following. They, they saw His glory and they followed Jesus. You say, I haven't seen Jesus. Well, I haven't either. But I've seen Him with the eyes of my heart through faith by the work of the Holy Spirit. And this scene leads to following. I think about young Peter here in the Gospel of Matthew, presumptuous, he doesn't understand, he's not grasping, but just imagine old Peter now, after the day of Pentecost. Now he's understood. Now he's seeing how the big picture, now he understands how it's all fit together. Now he's been preaching the Gospel for years, and he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, he's about to depart, because the Lord's revealed it to him. He's going to die soon. But turn with me in your Bible or look closely at the screen and notice what it says because I'm going to dwell here for just a moment. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter, where Peter writes about this experience on the mountain. Remember Peter, what he said about Jesus' death on the cross? It's not going to happen. But now here's old Peter. After his death, after Jesus' resurrection, after Jesus' ascension, the day of Pentecost, notice what he says in verse 16. For we did not follow. It's all about following Christ. He says, for we did not follow devise, cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's here in his old age and he's saying, I am a follower. I have followed him. He did die. I have been willing to die to myself and follow him and lose my life for his sake. And the reason I've done that is not because of some myth, because all this was made up. It's because I was up on a mountain one day, and he goes on and talks about it. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Look at verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, then a voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He never got over it. We ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Then later, Peter saw the Lord Jesus crucified and he saw the Lord Jesus raised and he experienced the day of Pentecost and he continued to see the Lord's glory and he followed Jesus. Seeing the glory of God in Christ and what he's done, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is God. I just keep repeating myself, I feel like, because I'm somehow wanting you to get this. <laughs> He is God who came to earth, who, who laid down his life and died in our place. When, we see the, when you see the glory of that, the weight of that, it's not just, well, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, I believe that. No! It's not just nice. It's not just, yeah, I believe that. Yeah, I've always believed that. No! It's glorious. 
And you grow in that love for who he is and what he's done as you get older as a Christian because you continue to behold his glory. And when you, when you see this greatness of who he is and what he's done, that's conversion. That, that's what it means to be converted to Christ. You've seen who he is, you've seen who you are, and you've seen what he's done about who you are, and you turn from your sin and following because you can't help it. You just got to. You got to turn and follow him. I love the song. As I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. As I beheld God's love displayed, this is what we're talking about. As I beheld God's love displayed, you suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. That, that's what happens in the human heart, this old dead human heart, by the grace of God, we see this glory, this weight, this beauty. We even see it more clearly than they did on the mountain. We, we do. They didn't understand it. He had not been yet raised, but he has for us. And because of it, it leads us to follow Christ. So I've asked myself before as a pastor, I've been preaching for over 25 years. And uh, I've asked myself at times, if I weren't a pastor, would I read my Bible like I do? If I weren't a pastor, would I come to church? Would I be as insistent about everybody else coming to church like I am? Or I'm, I just insist on that because I'm the pastor after all and I want people to be here. Or I come to church because I have to, because I'm the pastor after all. Would I pray, read my Bible, study my Bible? In other words, sometimes I've questioned my motivations. Do I do what I do because I'm just wanting to be successful at what I'm doing? Or is it just a legalism? And that's a real hard question for somebody to answer. But you know what? I asked myself also, it's before God called me to be a pastor when I was 21. I was doing it then. Because when I was a young boy, the glory of God, and as best I could understand as a young boy, the glory of God in Christ and the, and the love of God in His Son's suffering became precious to me. And I turned from my sin and I followed Jesus. And I love Him. And I've failed him miserably often since then. But I've never been happy about it. And I've seen growth. So the answer is, I didn't just start praying and preaching and telling people about Jesus because I became a pastor. I started doing that because God saved me. <laughs> he saved me. He saved me a long time ago. And I pray to God he's done the same for you. He's called affections in your heart for you. 
2 Corinthians explains it, chapter 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. You see what Satan does? What he was doing to you? He blinds so that you can't see any of this. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves, your service for Jesus' sake. But this is what God has done for us. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's shown brightly in the face of Jesus Christ in our hearts. So now our hearts have more of a longing for Christ to follow him than it does for the world because we see the beauty and greatness of Christ to who he is and what he's done. That's conversion. And it is by the grace of God. So turn to the Lord Jesus. Have you seen the glory of God in Christ? Is, it, is, that, is that good news to you? Is that great to you? I mean, do you rejoice in that? Do you rejoice that this same God died for you? Do you realize you're a sinner and that he died for you on the cross? And that is just awesome to you. I mean, it's just, you can't even put it into words. And because of that, do you want to turn from your sin and follow Christ? And if the answer is, yeah, I do. Then you've been converted. <laughs> I mean, if the answer is yes, that's what I want, then, then it sounds like you've probably been saved. And I want to talk to you before the service is over. Come and hunt me down. We'll talk about baptism and see what questions you have about how God's at work in your heart. But lastly and finally, continuing to Christ, conversion to Christ is seeing Christ. Continuing with Christ. Seeing comes through hearing. Seeing comes through hearing. If we're going to continue with Christ, what I'm simply saying is we need to continue to see what we saw in the first place. Right? The beauty of the Lord. The beauty of the gospel. Continue to see it. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, Peter continues and says this, We have the prophetic word more fully proclaimed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter tells these believers, here's old Peter in his old age now, he's following Christ, he's about to die. He's seen the glory of God. He's seen it in such a way that even though he's went through a lot of things and suffered a lot of persecution and seen one by one his fellow disciples being executed, he's still following Christ, he's still preaching the gospel and he's saying to these young believers, pay attention to the word. You don't have to go up on the mountain like we did, me, Peter, me, James, and John, you don't have to go seeking after some mountaintop experience. What you need to do is pay attention to the prophetic word. What you need to do is listen to what God has said through the prophets and through the apostles. It's been laid down to us once for all. There is tremendous application there for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Let me read that first. Remember Moses had to have that veil when he came down off a mountain, he took it off when he went to go talk to the Lord. It says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What does God do by His Spirit? How are we transformed, continually being transformed from one degree of glory to another? How does that happen? 
It happens as we behold the glory of the Lord. And how do we behold the glory of the Lord? Peter, Peter doesn't say, we went up on the mountain and got to see the glory of the Lord. Now what you need to do is pray that God will give you some, the same type of experience so you'll see the glory of the Lord. No. He says, pay attention to what's been said in the word. So if you want to see the glory of the Lord, as Paul says, is going to transform you, has a transforming effect on you, pay attention to the word. Pay attention to the word that displays the, the majesty of God in Christ and the love of God in his son's suffering. Pay attention to the word. Read the prophets. See what they said. They were talking about it all along. And read what the apostles have written since the prophets prophesied in the Old Testament. So this week I was in the sanctuary. I posted something on Facebook about it. I was listening to a song that Lauren had mentioned after the service last Sunday called Is He Worthy? And I was listening to a version of it I heard and heard before. I was sitting about right where probably Lauren's sitting at, right here in the sanctuary by myself one afternoon. And I started listening to that. Man, I tell you what, I just had a, a, a fit. I, I, I just did. I'm afraid I might have scared somebody if they'd come in the front door. And, after, and, and, and so I just listened to that song a few times and just cried and wept. And I, and I prayed later. I said, Lord, I needed that. I just, I just needed just kind of that fresh reminder that this is all right. It is all true. It is all glorious. And I do love you. But what I'm going to say to you is not to seek that. Sometimes God's just good like that. Old song I heard a long time ago, sometimes God just opens up heaven's main doors and pours out blessings upon my wretched soul. Sometimes the glory and majesty of who God is and what he's done just doesn't it just hit you every once in a while like that and just overwhelm. But don't seek that. Don't seek that. That's not going to sustain you. Pay attention to the word. What's going to sustain you is not mountaintop experiences, but it's being in the Word of God. Right what we're doing this morning, what you did in Sunday school this morning, what you do in your small group, what you do one-on-one -on -one when you meet together, what you do in your own devotional life, what you do, dads, when, with your kids as a family when you're gathering them around you, it's all a means of grace to continue to behold the glory of God and be transformed. And sometimes it's going to seem like a rote, right? Sometimes it's going to feel routine. Sometimes it's going to feel like, well, I, I, I just didn't get a whole lot out of that. You ever have that feeling? I do too. But brothers and sisters, I don't skip meals just because I don't enjoy them. I got to eat to be healthy. And brother, you need to eat the Word of God. You need to be in the gospel. You need to be filled with the gospel all the time. And sometimes, every once in a while, it's pinto beans and cornbread, and I'm like, glory, you know? Actually, anytime my wife cooks, it's glory, right? Got to be careful, I'm going to mess up. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Sometimes there's those mornings, or those, those Sunday mornings, or those, those small groups, those, those times going down with the Lord just thinking about who he is, and it just suddenly hits you all of a sudden. Don't seek experiences. Seek God in his word. 
Seek it with fellowship in the, in the church, with other believers. Scripture memory, reading the Bible, fasting. You think you're going to see the glory of God and be transformed? If you're watching filth on your television, not going to happen. It is not going to happen. Think about how often we forfeit our joy in the Lord because of how we spend our extra time. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you have been so good and so gracious, so kind even this morning as we sang songs and met in Sunday school to let us hear the gospel. And for some of us, Lord, we've got to see, we've got to see the weight and the majesty of God in Christ and the love you have in your son's suffering. Father, I pray you'd be gracious to us to help us to engage in these spiritual disciplines for our joy, not for our salvation, but for our joy because of what Christ has done. And Father, I pray for the one who is here who has heard these things many times and it seems to fall upon deaf ears it seems just to be received as okay that's nice my grandma likes that or my dad or my mom they like it so I'll come to church with them but it's not really for me God I pray you change that change it Lord change it in their heart grant them to be born again please in Jesus name I pray before we take part in the Lord's Supper, we're going to sing this song. Let's rejoice in it and what it means and praise the Lord together. If you'd like to come and pray this morning, talk about how the Lord's been at work in your heart, then come, come. I'd love to talk with you. Let's stand together and worship the Lord together right now. I once was lost in the darkest night Thought I knew the way Listen, that promise joy in life And led me to the grave I had no hope that you would own A rebel to your will And if you had not loved me first I would refuse you still But as I ran my hell-bound race Indifferent to the cost You looked upon my helpless state And led me to the and I beheld God's love displayed You suffered in my place You bore the wrath reserved for me Now all I know is grace Hallelujah Hold on 
seated please. I want to ask our deacons that are helping with the Lord's Supper if you would come forward at this time. If our deacons would come forward. And as they're coming I want to remind you as I often do when we take part in the Lord's Supper that uh, we invite you to take part in the Lord's Supper even if you're not a member of this church. You guys can be seated. Uh, we still welcome you to participate in the Lord's Supper if you're a member of the church. And the way you become a member of God's family of His people is is that there's been a time in your own heart, in your own life, where you've repented of your sins and you've trusted alone in Jesus Christ. You've been born again. You've been saved. You're a follower of Christ. And if you're a follower of Christ, you follow the Lord in believer's baptism, then we, then we, would, ask, we would invite you to participate in, in the Lord's Supper with us this morning. Now, we're warned in Scripture that if we participate in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, then then we're, doing, we're disrespecting the body of the Lord. And so what that would mean is if we're taking part in the Lord's Supper in kind of a flippant way, it could mean that. But I think more so what it means is it's talking about the body of Christ. In other words, if we take part in the Lord's Supper and there's some type of, of ongoing sin in our life that, that we're making excuses for, and uh, that's harming the body of Christ, folks. And, and if you're making excuses for sin and you can profess to be a believer but you have ongoing unrepentant sin that you're not dealing with, all I can do is warn you that the Bible says some are sick and some sleep. Some have died because of that. It says it in 1 Corinthians 11. So I say these things as, as a means of grace for you this morning. If you've, if you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ, never followed the Lord in baptism, then let this be a reminder to you that uh, you need to, and we love you, and we'd love to talk with you about how the Lord's at work in your hearts. I'm going to ask our deacons to stand right now, and I'm going to pass out the elements of the Lord's Supper and explain them in a few moments. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.